Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Karen. You're welcome. And uh, Karen is, Karen is uh, my wife's cousin. <laughs> and my closest cousin. Mm, nah. so, I'm going to tell the rest of them that at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Lee, for the invitation to join you here in Charleston for your 2014 Color Music Festival. I was struck by the name, it, uh, and I was struck by the timing of your festival. For those of you who've spent much time on the East Coast, as obviously you have, many of you have, um, I think in terms of color, and I think in terms of fall, the, the change in foliage, the, the, the diverse uh, kind of uh, profile of, of, of our trees, of our, of our landscape, and uh, it's rich, it's, it's, it's nurturing, it's, it, it speaks to one's uh, uh, interbeing, and, and that's certainly the case for me. And how appropriate in terms of, of what, uh, what uh, I've seen in terms of your materials, reflective of the, the first art, otherwise known as the vocal art, uh, uh, all through small ensembles, uh, larger ensembles, culminating with one of the masterpieces of the choral literature. Uh, and to see uh, such a culmination occur with the Verdi that David Morrow will lead tomorrow night, I just regret that uh, I regret on a personal level not being able to uh, experience the full range on a professional level. I don't regret it at all because mm -hmm. I must be back tonight for our opening week, uh, our opening production of Electra with one of the most foremost uh, 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 sopranos in that title role, Christine Gerke. Uh, nonetheless, when we are able to combine personal interest and professional responsibilities, and many times professional responsibilities coincide with personal interests, we just do our best to try to make it happen. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so today marks my return to Charleston um, um, in terms of uh, a, a second trip within three years or four years. Four years. Yeah. Four years. I was last year uh, at uh, Karen's invitation to be part of the uh, Jazz uh, Initiative, and it was really a, 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 just an incredible experience. And my recollection is that it happened to coincide with a visit that, uh, where Jimmy Heath uh, was the, uh, an NEA jazz master, by the way, uh, was one of the uh, featured uh, guests. And um, it also, for me, it uh, kind of symbolized uh, a couple things. The role that Charleston has played historically, and uh, Karen uh, started that introduction, and Lee uh, uh, extended that reference uh, when we met just a few moments ago. And so the opportunity to, to learn more about Charleston uh, is uh, a current uh, area of interest along with making sure we can try to connect the dots associated with what we do individually and to our organizations and how that all links to our personal, uh, our personal interests. Uh, earlier this year, as Karen pointed out, I started my, a, a new journey, a new journey that was uh, 
to take on the presidency of Michigan Opera Theater. And it's a place where my career began uh, many years ago with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. That was right out of the University of Michigan, uh, where I was uh, a student. But let me back up just for a second, just to share with you a little bit about what may perhaps started that journey, if you will, which began with the DSO. Uh, when I was quite young, I was always fascinated by making things happen. So, since it's a smaller group, I'll give you the longer version. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I was, uh, as, a, as a youngster, I was, uh, I was a, paper, a newspaper carrier. You know, I was, uh, but I was also very competitive. It was a citywide competition. Who could sell the most newspapers? The, the trip would, the end result would be a trip to be the guest of the Detroit Tigers for three days, which ended up being my first flight. So not only did I sell newspapers, but I hired someone else to sell to to deliver the papers. So I had a little network going on for that campaign. Um, who would have thought? Who would have you had any idea that sometimes those kind of managerial decisions, kind of you get the bug early. Uh, but moving on uh, later on, I had an opportunity to during my time at. Uh, uh, at the University of Michigan, where I was a vocal major, I was also uh, I played the cello. I had I was uh, I had uh, there was not at that time uh, programs such as uh, arts administration. At the time, I didn't know what arts administration may have been. I knew what what I was doing. I was in the Michigan Men's Glee Club. I was the business manager. I was the vice president. I was the president. I was a, the, the assistant conductor at, at various times. President of the University Choir. And so the whole, and I was involved in junior achievement and all of those kinds of issues that I think are, are great experiences for any young person. Uh, I was involved in the community, in our, in our local community uh, center, through parks and recreation and things of that nature. So being involved was a very important factor. My first trip to Europe was when I was in the Michigan Men's Glee Club. It was a candy sale. So, Point was anyone who can sell more candy than anyone else gets to go six weeks to Europe without any expenses. Boy, that was a great charge, and we did it. And I got my church involved. And I got uh, anyone, everyone else involved. Point is, I sold more candy than the top three, uh, the top three people in the operation. So you might have said, "Why didn't I become a car salesman?" <laughs> because all of the steps taken were based on a goal, uh, a desire to, to, to make something happen. I am, do not consider myself a visionary. I do see myself as trying to improve a condition, trying to advance a cause, trying to make, uh, create more meaning to, to wonderful ideas. And in my view, those are the germs of a, or the kernels, if you will, of a of what is centered in arts administration, or or at one point we refer to them as an impresario, uh, the whole notion of making something happen. So, as it turns out, following my time at Michigan, um, during my early part of my graduate studies, there was a 
a role that was maintained by the associate dean, Robert Luscombe. Never will forget him, because he created an opportunity for me he had no idea about. In his role as the associate dean, he was responsible for managing the summer opera, uh, The Scarlet Letter, Chimarosa. And so I, uh, he had just been appointed dean at Kalamazoo College, and they wanted him to start early, and he knew that he had the summer responsibility. So the then dean of the school, Alan Britton, said to me, Wayne, based on your experience here, is this something that you think you can or would be willing, uh, capable of doing? Without batting an eyelash. I said, but of course. <laughs> Not having a clue what would be required. But nonetheless, uh, that was my first real test, if you will. Um, I was uh, the dean, I made the secretary available. And so we started the process of communicating with the regents, the, 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 the media, the musicians, etc. The opera turned out really quite well. <laughs> Income exceeded expenses, capacity audience. And the, at the end of the process, the dean asked whether or not I consider a career in arts management. So what is that? <laughs> um, and I say all of that because we might be in the midst of something that we can't get our hands right, our arms around. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Karen last evening, who talked about a niece of hers, which was particular, and she's at UVA, and she's still not quite sure what she wants to do. And I said, no, that's okay. Uh, because sometimes we think about trying to impose a career path or something that's very definitive on our young people, maybe perhaps a little too early. It's one thing to register the concept and so they can have that sense of curiosity to be able to develop. But uh, give them time and make sure that we're also nurturing them in a, in a meaningful way. So as it turns out, uh, that, uh, that turned out well. And as a result of the time with the opera at the University of Michigan, uh, we learned that there was an opening with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra as an administrative assistant to the executive director of the orchestra at that time. And based on my experience at, as a student in Michigan, the dean said, uh, I'm aware of this opening, and if you are interested, I'd be glad to make a call and set something up. How often does that happen? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so he made the call, I went down, I interviewed, said this is great, but as the business manager of the Michigan's Glee Club, I'm taking the club on tour to the West Coast for three weeks. He said, fine, when, when you come back, let's talk. I said, great. I returned three weeks later, he offered me the job, he started immediately. A year and a half later, I was named assistant manager of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Uh, and uh, start, um, my, my role was in terms of developing state relations. Uh, and uh, and I, I managed the civic orchestra, the youth orchestra. Become involved in sales. And one thing led to the other. So after six years with the Detroit Symphony, I said, well, I think I've had the involvement in areas of development, marketing, uh, media relations, education. I think I now I'm ready for my own organization. Uh, then I was appointed there for the, uh, I, there were two options, going to Des Moines, Iowa, or going to Springfield, Massachusetts. And I conferred with two or three people in the industry, and I think I made the right decision in going to Springfield, Massachusetts, where 
my life changed dramatically, where I had an opportunity to test ideas that had not been tested before, where I was able to make a difference, where we grew the budget from 600,000 to slightly under 2 million in a four or five, five year period. Then after that, went on to Springfield, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where I managed the orchestra. Orchestra was known for creating, uh, supporting music of our time. So we established the Contemporary uh, Music Festival. We had two international festivals with 16 composers from 20, uh, 23 composers from 16 countries, music critics. Took the orchestra to Carnegie Hall, Kennedy Center, we recorded and uh, then followed uh, an opportunity to, uh, to go to Atlanta. Because after 10 years with the organization, I thought it was time with, with Louisville. In Atlanta, I was a music producer for the Cultural Olympiad, the Olympic Games. And for those of you who uh, may not be aware, since the beginning of the Games, we've always had a Cultural Olympiad, an arts festival to accompany the Games designed in a way so that when you attend a game in the evening, you also have an arts experience in the afternoon, or vice versa. And uh, being able to have the opportunity to assemble the world's most significant chamber music ensemble at that time, Charles Wadsworth, who you're quite familiar with, uh, here in Charleston, uh, was, the, was, the, uh, was the impresario for that program. Winter Marcellus was charged with creating an international jazz festival, uh, which name that's quite familiar to you. We had uh, the London Symphony, we had the, the Brush, uh, the uh, Bavarian uh, uh, Orchestra uh, with Lauren Mazel, et cetera, et cetera. But I knew that that was a short-term opportunity. It was a 10, it's like creating a, a Fortune 500 company that goes out of business in 90 days. So during that time, um, I heard from a Charleston resident, long-term, highly admired individual by the name of Scott Shanklin Peterson. Scott Shanklin, I think, at that time. And uh, I appeared on a panel, and, fought, and I happened to learn that there was an opening as the director of music and opera at the National Endowment of the Arts. And, uh, Scott and I became acquainted during that panel. I returned to Atlanta, which you called next week, to say, how would you like to think about taking on the role of director of music and opera? Well, that was certainly foreign. It certainly hadn't followed anything that I had done. It was more of a policy nature. Uh, in fact, the role was policy advisor to the chairman of the Arts Endowment. I must say that uh, it was a great experience. I said yes, obviously. I was there for, I thought I'd do it for three or four years. I was there 16 and a half years. And uh, it was just the most satisfying phase of my career at that time. For, because for as long as I can remember, my interest in the arts, my interest as a profession, my interest in terms of a personal passion has been about how can you make things better and in, in my role with managing the largest portfolio of the NEA, which is music and opera, this included work in the genres of orchestral, choral, early music, jazz, uh, opera, uh, and, and, other, and music films, and I think, and I think 
other areas of that nature. And so during my tenure, I had the opportunity to work with uh, some really remarkable leaders um, of these areas to help them nurture their, their interests, offer the public a platform for increased public awareness, and offer a nod within their respective areas as recognition for their individual contributions to our society. Some of those examples included something called Continental Harmony, a project that was designed to support artists, arts residencies in all 50 states, in which local arts groups would select composers to work with ensembles in their communities to observe significant artistic work. A project that I would particularly proud, in fact, all three, all three which will follow, uh, is one called Made in America, in an attempt to foster performances of contemporary works by American composers and, many, and several composers of color. Sixty small budget orchestras from more than 40 states performed a work by the composer Joan Tower. In 2008, Joan Tower's composition, Made in America, was performed nationwide with greater frequency than Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and provided all 60 orchestras with a point of distinction uh, and local, uh, within their local and regional uh, region. Something that might have particular interest to those of you here in Charleston relates to something called the NEA Jazz Masters, and I made reference to it with regard to Jimmy Heath, who spent time here as, uh, uh, as an artist in residence. The, in 1982, the NEA made a conscious decision to see how might the agency recognize America's music. And Part of that uh, decision was influenced by the likes of Billy Taylor, David Baker, uh, Jimmy Owens, Warwick Carter, uh, names of those individuals who've been part of the jazz scene, who've been part of jazz education, who've been part of, of uh, I would say, life as, we, uh, as we've known uh, from an earlier part of uh, the mid part of the, of the 20th century. So as it turns out, the intent was to, how do we raise the platform of the NEA Jazz Masters in a way that there's greater appreciation by both the recipient, uh, because it, it happens to include a $25,000 uh, uh, fellowship, uh, how can we raise the public awareness, depreciation, uh, be able to convey value of what becoming an NEA Jazz Master means to the, to the nation. And in that regard, we were able to create an annual uh, um, performance with Jazz Lincoln Center. Uh, we were able to create a uh, television series, uh, public television. We were able to create a webcasting uh, so it, we could disseminate an, an award ceremony that would be uh, available uh, throughout the world. And we were able to create a private moment for the jazz masters themselves. Without media, without public attention, it was just about them. We created a moment where, and so I managed to secure the support uh, from private sponsors to create what we refer to an annual NEA jazz masters reunion. And it, not many people know about it, other than those who were actually recipients. But imagine sitting in a room with your heroes, 
the likes of seeing Gerald Wilson, 92 years old at that time, you know, sporting his NEA Jazz Masters cap wherever he appeared, and seeing the likes of Jimmy, James Moody, otherwise known as Moody, or seeing Frank Foster's uh, uh, silk uh, stockings, uh, or seeing the likes of, uh, of, uh, of uh, just the guys. Uh, and it was just an incredible experience. And it underscores the fact that there's a public focus, there's a community benefit, but there's also that private recognition of the artist. Because at the end of the day, it's about the art. It's advancing the art. And that's the charge that, for me, has been central to my own life's work. Now, there's, there's an, the crowning moment for me in terms of what was, what was it about with regard to NEA Jazz Masters is that the personal friendships that one develops over time. And James Moody passed away several years ago and I, I, I went out for the, for, for the service. And his wife Linda shared with me that uh, he was so proud of, to be, of being an NEA Jazz Master. It meant the world to him. His tombstone is inscribed, James Moody, NEA Jazz Master. So those are special times. Another project that I am immensely proud to have encouraged was support for an organization known as the Sphinx Organization. And many of you are quite familiar. The Sphinx Organization was created in 1998. Um, its founder, Aaron Dworkin, violinist, poet, brilliant mind, uh, was concerned that as he sat in the audience or as he sat in his orchestra, he didn't see many people like him around him or on stage. He didn't see many who would help to inspire, to help to perhaps determine whether or not this is a role for, for him to play, and he wanted to make sure that others had a similar kind of, had the experience of being able to, to, to know what it was like to, uh, to form this great literature. He also was aware that there was an absence when he looked at the concert programs, that he could not see any evidence of people like him uh, reflected in the repertoire of, uh, on our stages. So he created what is known as the Sphinx Organization. And I remember meeting with Aaron and then uh, Willis Patterson at the University of Michigan in Willis's basement, talking about his aspiration for this project called Sphinx. For those of you who are not familiar with the Sphinx Organization, I encourage you to Google. You know, we no longer have to wait till Monday morning when the library opens <laughs> to check out information. You know, ask, our, ask one of our kids or one of our you know, young relatives in five seconds, you know, they have the answer. But the point is the Sphinx organization has changed the landscape of this country. When I began with the Detroit Symphony many years ago, uh, there was about a 2% of, um, of the professional musicians and symphony orchestras nationwide were represented by people of color. Uh, today, that's closer to 
Now one might say, why only 4%? You have no idea. The number we talk about, I should first of all say, there are 1,200 orchestras in this country. So there are 1,200 ensembles, like the Charleston Symphony Orchestra, uh, quite a few smaller, uh, but uh, quite a number that are much larger. So they range, they may range in budget size from 50 to $100,000 a year to more than 90 million a year to the operated varying levels. But the point is, as a result of Sphinx and, and the partnership that's been created between that organization and the orchestra field, we have seen an incredible journey whereby a number of young people are playing roles in orchestras nationwide. We're seeing where principals of orchestras, in other words, the first chair positions are being filled by, by people of color. The Metropolitan Opera now, you know, at least I think actually, I think uh, McGill has just gone to Philadelphia or somewhere, mm. uh, was uh, play the uh, principal, uh, uh, principal clarinet was uh, uh, African-American. The principal, and his brother was playing the Seattle Symphony. It's just a very different landscape. And I remember when I was speaking, I, uh, last night I happened to see Felix, uh, and he reminded me that we first worked together in 1985 when we created a, a, an all African-American orchestra to, to uh, perform uh, a series of works in Dallas, Texas. And Leo is delighted to see that Felix is still very much on the scene and networking and uh, delivering, yes. delivering in response to the charge. So we're currently witnessing an evolution of a changing cultural landscape, evidence in our concert halls, evidence in our communities. Size does not matter. Increasingly, the entrepreneurial spirit of artists and community leaders is becoming the new way in which our communities offer a point of distinction. Strategic alliances across disciplines, cultural sectors, and ethnic communities are resulting in new artistic expressions. Factors in this movement are both economical and attitudinal. During my last year with the Arts Endowment, I took enormous pleasure in making an on-site visit to St. Louis, Missouri where jazz opera titled Champion, composed by Terence Blanchard, received its premiere. It was funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. The work was a collaboration between Jazz St. Louis and Opera Theater St. Louis. Beyond the performance, which was stellar, the project brought together two distinct art forms and therefore two distinct communities, working in tandem in preparation and celebration of a community-based arts organization. Yes, I do believe that a rising tide raises all boats. The ability to expand one sphere of influence to a larger segment of our community can be an invaluable lesson. I was pleased to serve as an advocate with this initiative of the Arts Endowment by having both a jazz panel and an opera panel independently assess the artistic excellence and merit of this unusual project. And by the way, I look forward to seeing other communities program Blanchard's uh, jazz opera champion. And the other point I would say about bringing those two sectors together underscores the role that we can play quite often 
in public service, whether or not it's at the National Doctor <coughs> of the Arts level or the national level, whether it's at the regional level, state levels, uh, the local level, um, the Arts Commission here in, in, uh, in uh, South Carolina, whether it's the local, uh, local um, uh, agencies, they all play a role in helping us to identify possibilities where we can work together, we're able to advance the agenda for the community. This year, national foundations are increasingly focused on issues of metrics, issues of, of uh, metrics not necessarily in, in, in a numeric sense, but also in a condition, and changes, changes in condition. And to the degree that we are able to leverage whatever our uh, work happens to be, here at this museum, working in tandem with Color of Music Festival, uh, whether or not it's uh, uh, other ties that may not necessarily be uh, immediately come to mind, uh, I encourage us to think along those lines because that's the role of an arts administrator. That's the role of those of us who are charged with trying to enrich, provide enrich uh, range of activities for our community. And that's a role that we should all not wait for others to step up, but to do so ourselves. While numerous persons of color have gained access to the world's largest stages, over the past 30 years, we have witnessed the emergence of an arts education crisis in America. As a society, with notable exceptions, we have allowed our children to be deprived of meaningful arts education experiences in their schools that would have contributed to their development as fully educated young men and women who value not only science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, but who are also grounded in arts and culture. I believe that it is vital that artists and arts leaders step up to the plate and devote time and attention to the goal of assuring that children receive an education that is well-rounded and inclusive of the arts so that they have better choices available to them and can contribute to society in a more complete way. I will, I will never forget my first vocal teacher in the fourth grade, Miss Martin. She was gorgeous. <laughs> but beyond that, Miss Martin, for me, started my own journey in terms of the kind of experiences that would ultimately help to inform what I do today. I remember going to Ford Auditorium in Detroit, Michigan, a field trip to see the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, and what an impression that left on me in terms of, and shortly thereafter, I encouraged my family to, to acquire a violin so that I could study. I, rec I recall the the, the, the interest in being in a cello because I wanted to get to know another young lady who was seated next to me and she played cello. I started to play cello. She stopped the next week. But nonetheless, I said this is something that I enjoy because for me, the sound of the cello was equivalent to the sound of the human voice. I could see the connection. I couldn't articulate it at that point, but ultimately that would matter. I had the opportunity to work with, uh, to study with Kemper Harold, who was a long-term uh, director of Morehouse uh, Glee Club at, 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 uh, at, uh, uh, for many years, founded the, a string quartet, was the early president of, of the National Association of Negro Musicians, happened to move to Detroit where his daughter Josephine Love 
was uh, very involved, and uh, who, who provided me with my first cello that I paid for after my net proceeds from my paper route. But all of these things, we're all connected in one form or another. I had no idea the Kemper Herald was the Kemper Herald that we know today. I knew that he took an interest in me, and I was very appreciative, uh, and he took an interest in me because my high school uh, choir teacher introduced me to him. Uh, I knew that uh, when I was in high school, the Metropolitan Opera was on tour. And George Shirley, who was a, a student of my high school teacher years ago, came to our school for, 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 a, for, a, for a performance, a, a, school, a school event. And the rehearsal, he was going to sing that evening. So he said during the rehearsal, well, who's been singing the, the role all this time? And so my choral director referred to me. And he said, well, I want to hear this young man. So here I was singing for George Shirley, unannounced, uh, 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 not prepared uh, in terms of for that moment, certainly prepared for the role. Uh, and uh, just one thing led to the other. Who would have known Tonight I'm having dinner with George and his wife before our performance of Electra. My point is, going back to the experience in the school, you never know the outcomes of these encounters. The outcomes that are inspired by our teachers, the outcomes that are inspired by condition, the outcomes that are inspired by the moment. That cannot always be prescribed, but certainly can be, we can certainly uh, create an environment for our youngsters to be able to have more choices to experience along with the requirements of the state mandates in education. The, point, the above leads me to the fact that the requirements for an arts administrator continue to evolve. Similar to every other profession, it is no longer sufficient to bring the baseline credentials of articulating and overseeing an artistic vision bridging the financial gap with earned income, managing the work of volunteers, managing a staff, managing a role in advocacy for their organizations and their communities. A vibrant arts organization that seeks to thrive in a depressed community must have a leader who understands the local and regional environment and is committed to an effort of conveying value to one's community. James Abruzzo, a highly respected senior recruitment officer, offered an environmental scan on the state of arts administration. He stated, there is a growing leadership crisis in arts administration. And this is fueled by four specific areas. And he points out, the makeup of our cities is rapidly changing and the largest segment of arts administrators are getting older. That subsequent generation of arts administrators are not keeping pace with the societal needs for that leadership. Another area is that there's an explosion of nonprofit arts organizations. Nonprofit organizations, for sure. The arts are moving at such a rapid pace that uh, the requirements for leadership, requirements for governance, requirements for informed volunteer roles is rapidly increasing. The demands and requisite skills for arts administrators at our all-time high. And for some, this has led 
to those who just don't want to keep up with the pace. The needs of our institutions are growing so rapidly. And I'm also sorry to say that in that fourth case, that succession planning is, 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 is almost non-existent with so many of our arts organizations. Succession planning to identify those who will carry the torch. And it seems to me that one of the greatest lessons we can leave with our communities and those arts organizations that we care so much about is to invest the time, to invest the resources, to talk about what is required to sustain or what is required to bring an end to a particular vision, a particular journey, or a particular organization. I happen to believe that, that there is a, there's a cycle. And as there is an individual cycle association with life and the end of life, there's no reason why we should think that there should be not a cycle associated with many of our organizations. When an organization has fulfilled its stated goal, there's nothing wrong to say, we've done it. We've achieved what we set out to do. The discipline, however, to, to, to declare victory is very difficult for organizations in this country. Whether or not you were created in 1919 or whether you were created in 2009, there's something to be said about making a decision to either enhance the vision, to think about the next step of what you might do as an organization, or to say, it's been great. I will never forget an organization in Minneapolis-St. Paul, the Dale Warland Singers. The organization carries his name. The organization was founded on the, on the principles of a certain kind of core literature. And Dale reached a point in his career and his, in discussion with his board, he said, I've done it. And the question came up, well, what do we do in bringing someone else to carry the name of Dale Warland Singers? There's certainly not a Dale Warland Jr. The organization made a conscious decision. We will observe, I'm not sure if it's their 40th or whatever particular anniversary, we will go one more year. We will, we will declare a great celebration of what we've accomplished to date. We will turn over our archives to the University of Cincinnati at the conservatory. We will make a final recording. We will celebrate to, and, and share with our community what we've achieved and declare victory. The Color of Music Festival is a remarkable festival of high artistic value and high uh, artistic value potential. In my view, it serves as a stellar example of civic engagement and emerging artistry worthy of attention and celebration. I am deeply impressed that many other points of distinction that the festival has created is reflected in the breadth of perspective, background, and compositional style identified with the three composers you've had in residence here this week. Similarly, the full spectrum of vocal art keyboard, chamber ensembles, and the culmination with that great work that I referenced earlier, the very Requiem, is absolutely remarkable. So recognizing the dilemma that exists with organizations and in our communities, several organizations such as Women of Color and the Arts, uh, League of American Orchestras, Jazz Reach Performing Arts Association, state arts agencies, uh, and others have sought to provide an entry into nonprofit arts organizations for graduates with degrees in arts administration 
by offering fellowships and internships. These opportunities can provide a point of entry for individuals of color to consider this career path. I'm aware that the College of Charleston has an exemplary arts administration program, and I'd say that whether Karen was sitting here or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I invite those of you who know of a number of young people who are contemplating what their next steps in life might be on a professional track to consider the role as an arts administrator. Your community and your nation need more of them. Thank you. With this intimate group, I'd love to entertain any question that you, any immediate question.